Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Just really quick review. Verse 3 through 6, we, we looked at several weeks ago. That all talks about the Father's plan. Verse 7 through 12 talks about what Jesus did. And then um, uh, 13 and 14 talk about the Holy Spirit uh, and the Holy Spirit's role. So we're looking at, at how, what Jesus did for us in, in this. And, and we looked at, at verse 6 a couple of weeks ago where Paul said that through his grace, it, it, I love the first part of that, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. He didn't just, and, and this is kind of a, one of many themes I see Paul dealing with here. And we're going to talk about, because we, we saw this some last week, a big part of what Paul's talking about here in verse 7 is redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. But if that's all God did for us, we would be left helpless. There, having your sins forgiven still can leave you helpless to fight the enemy, helpless to have any ability to prosper, to do anything. But thank God that's not, I mean, that is the beginning, but he made us accepted that he's previewing there what he's going to say explicitly later on, that he not only brought us out of the power of sin, he elevated us to sit with him in heavenly places. He has forgiven us our sins, but he's also given us favor. He has healed our bodies. He um, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has made us said right there, to be accepted in the beloved. And there's kind of a double meaning there. That beloved, I think the, 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 the most plain reading of that is we're, we're accepted in the church. We're part of his body, the body of Christ. But I also think there's a reference to that since it is the body of Christ, we're accepted in heaven. When God looks at us, he doesn't see the natural me. And thank God for that. You know, I, I, somebody told, I think the first time I heard this, and he may have gotten it from somewhere else, was from, from Keith Moore. He's like most pastors, most evangelists. He works hard. He puts in a lot of hours. But somebody, he, something, somehow he got blessed, and one of his members said, well, you deserve that. And he laughed, and they said, what are you laughing about? He said, I don't deserve any of this. He said, if I got what I deserved, I would have died years ago and gone straight to hell and spent eternity there. And he said, it's all God's grace. It's all God's blessing. If there's anything that comes to me that's a blessing, it's just from God's grace because I don't deserve any of it. And, and especially for me being in the ministry, I know people... They just, they have a hard time. They, 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 you know, some people don't have any problem not putting me on the pedestal. There are a lot of people that, man, they, I'm a heretic. I'm a, you know, I'm lower than, than the lowest worm there is. 
I don't even have a problem with that because I understand better than they do all the problems I've got. Not near what I used to have, but I still got a boatload of them. But a lot of people want to take ministers and stick them on a pedestal. Somebody, my pastor in Tulsa, some one of the members one time said to his wife, she said, it just, it just must be a real blessing to, to live with that man and, and hear this wisdom seven days a week. And she, she had a weak moment. She laughed out loud. <laughs> she said, honey, and he'll say it. He said it from the pulpit. I have an anointing to teach it and preach it. I don't have an anointing to live it other than the same anointing you've got to live it. So he said, if, I, if you see me do something stupid out in public, just pray for me. And don't, and, and, and don't condemn me and realize that I'm no different. But I'm still beloved. I'm still in the family of God. When God looks at me, all he sees is Jesus. All he sees is the Jesus in me. All he hears is the blood crying out mercy and forgiven. And if it wasn't for that, you know, none of this would work anyway. But then in verse 7, we switch gears and we start talking about what what Jesus's part in this is. And in verse 7, he, he makes the statement and he goes right back to this. It's, it's a spiritual fact that everything that we have, we have in him. And being in him, in, in one sense, it's a mystery. I, I you know, it's, I, I look at it the same way I look at the Trinity. I've had people tell me, oh, I understand the Trinity. And I, I, I don't want to be cruel, but I'll, I almost want to laugh and, and look at him and say, no, you don't. You have no idea how the Trinity works. You, you can't have three individuals, three separate personalities that are also one. It doesn't work. And I've had the, the closest I've ever had people say, well, no, that's like the Navy and the Army and the Air Force. And it's like, well, that's, that's sort of close, but, you know, Jacob's a Marine. If I called, and, and I know enough Marines to know, if I called Jake, Jake, Jacob, I'll get it out here in a minute. If I called Jacob Airman, I, might, I probably ought to start looking for an exit because Marines don't like to be called, you know, the only thing worse than an Airman's a, 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 a sailor. <laughs> but it's you know and, and and whether you're you can be a marine and army and pretty much the only thing you agree on is you would you would all love to be in the air force and have it as cushy as those guys do because they don't have any problems well you know it just because you're in the 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 armed forces if you're a marine that doesn't make you a part of the army other than it makes you a, you know, you're one as far as your purpose. But the Trinity, there is a mystery to that. And being in him, there's a mystery to that. How I can be spiritually seated with Christ in heavenly places, I don't understand it with my natural mind. I just accept it. I'm there. And, and, and in, in my sense, I look at, at it more as a position of authority especially when I have to go to warfare. When I have to go to battle with the devil 
over the health of, of myself or my wife or my kids or my grandkids. I don't approach that battle with the sense that the devil's going to be afraid of me. He doesn't fear me a bit. But if I come to him in the name of Jesus, and I come to him from my position seated with Christ in heavenly places, he's already defeated. He's been down that road. He knows what Christ did to him, and he knows that he has no authority, he has no power, he has no ability to resist that name. Then he is afraid. I, I, I almost relate it to there's one scene in The Godfather, one of the very early ones, where the undertaker is coming and he wants justice for his daughter. And the godfather's looking at him and he said, all I want is your friendship. I just want you to do me this favor and someday, and that day may never come, I will ask a favor in return. He said, but if people know that you are my friend, then they will fear you. They don't fear that little old undertaker. What's he going to do? Overcharge him? <laughs> He's got no ability. But being a friend of the Godfather, people respect you. Or they at least don't want to mess with you knowing that you have a friend that can whack them. Well, that's part of what being in him is. It gives me access to the rights, the privileges. But Paul says the biggest part of it here in, in the first part of verse 7, this is what we looked at last, last week. In him, we have redemption. That word literally means to buy back out of a slave market. That's what it means to redeem something. We have coupons that you go to a grocery store and if you redeem it, they give you money off. Well, I like coupons. I like getting 50 cents or a dollar off a product. But if I don't cash it in, I don't get the value out of it. Well, the value, the redemption from Jesus is through his blood. And one of the biggest things, and, and I see this uh, a lot in our modern world, we want our world to be, or, or let's not say we, a lot of the world wants our world to be a bloodless existence. My stepmom, God love her, she was a, she didn't belong to PETA, but she was really sympathetic to PETA. And I, every once in a while, if I really felt brave and, and wasn't, you know, worried about getting on her bad side, I'd say, but you eat hamburgers all the time. Well, yeah, I'll eat meat, but I don't want to know where it comes from. Well, that's kind of how we are in the modern world. We have been so separated from the farm. I remember what it was like. You go hunting, you've got to clean your, your, the game that you kill. You go fishing, you've got to clean the fish. Well, that gets really nasty real fast. So you are connected to what killing does. Today, you know, most people don't even know what a chicken looks like unless it's wrapped up in plastic and ready to consume. You know, our meat comes in a, in a package that you can't see through. It, it, it comes already sliced, and half the time you go in, it's already pre-cooked. You just have to put it in the microwave and warm it up a little bit. We're so disconnected that we don't realize that the blood is the key. Moses, in Leviticus, if you want to turn back there, he gives the, the basis for why the blood whether it's the blood of a, of, a, of a 
animal that's being sacrificed or the blood of Jesus, he gives us the reason in Leviticus 17. We're going to look at uh, verse 8 through 14. He gives the reason that it is so important. In verse 8 of Leviticus 17, he says, Also you shall say to them, and this is God giving him, Moses, the law, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. That tells me right there, there is only one way to bring a sacrifice. That's why it was so important for Jesus to, to come into the world in the way that he did. He came in as a man. It, people sometimes laugh at the concept of a virgin birth, or they try to explain it away. It's vital to the message of the gospel because in the biblical law, you inherited from your father, not from your mother. That's why it was the sin of Adam that counted more than the sin of Eve. Now, Eve fell when she sinned. But Adam's sin, Eve was deceived, Adam was not. And when Adam fell, it was a, a willing departure from God's love. My personal opinion, and it is just an opinion, when, when Genesis says that they were naked and, and unashamed, I personally believe that they, not, being, not having fallen yet, I think they were covered in the glory of God, just like Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I don't think they saw each other's bodies. All they saw was the glory of God. And it so clothed them that, that they were there, but they were perfect. But when Eve bit into that fruit, that forbidden fruit, the glory, I believe, the glory of God departed from her. And Adam knew this is wrong. Eve thought she was doing something right. She thought she worked for Ford Motor Company. She had a better idea than God did. Stupid but not necessarily wrong motive. Adam knew the difference. And we, you read throughout the entire Bible, it says that we inherit that sin nature from our father, Adam. Never does it say we inherit our sin nature from our mother, Eve. It, the Bible really is, is pretty much silent and in, in using the term our mother Eve. It's part of the reason most pagan religions put so much emphasis on Mother Earth, Mother Nature. They are, the, when, when the Bible talks about the Antichrist, in some ways, it's not just that that, that person is, is um, against God and God's purpose, but a lot of the pagan religions exalt the, the woman, but, and, and, and that doesn't mean that, let me be clear, it doesn't mean that there's more value on a man than a woman. But they want to exalt the female side over the masculine side because they, they somehow think that they can get out of the penalty of sin. But everything that we read, it's, it comes from our sin nature, comes from our father Adam, 
But to get redemption, there's only one way. We have to come through the door of the tabernacle. Jesus' physical body was the tabernacle. He was born of a woman, but he had no natural father, so he did not inherit the nature of sin because Adam was not his father. God the Father created a sperm just miraculously, I don't know how it happened physically. All I know is that Mary got pregnant, but she had no natural father. So Jesus didn't come into the world with a, the, the nature of sin. So the only way he could fall was to commit a sin just like Adam did, which he didn't. That's why it was so important for him to live a sinless life. But then he also said in the Gospels that I am the door. I am the only way. That's because there was only one way to bring a sacrifice. And if you didn't bring it in that door the proper way, it did not count. Well, Jesus did everything. He fulfilled the entire law. He did everything precisely the way it was supposed to have done so that when he was sacrificed, his blood would count. But it was more than just his physical blood because we really want to be careful. We don't want to make light of the blood of Jesus by any means. But at the same time, we don't want to make a talisman out of the blood of Jesus. I heard somebody say one time, if you were sick and you could have collected the blood you know, that dripped off of Jesus' body and given yourself a transfusion of that blood, you'd have walked away well. I don't believe that. It wasn't, his, it wasn't touching the physical part of his blood. It's not touching the physical wood of the cross. Uh, we don't want to get into um, idol worship and make an idol out of his blood because if, if you read on uh, verse 10 of uh, Leviticus 17, it says, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. God told us through Moses there that the life of the soul, the life of the animal is in the blood. You see this in a lot of primitive cultures. I've, I've seen it depicted, I've read about it in a lot of academic books, but I've also seen it depicted in movies where primitive cultures, you go out and you, you know, you're, they're hunter-gatherers, you kill an animal, one of the very first things they do is they will thank the animal for giving their life for their life, but then they will cut it open and they will pull its liver out. Because in most ancient cultures, it wasn't the heart, the seat of the soul wasn't the physical heart, it was more the liver, because that's where the blood was. And they literally would eat part of the liver raw, right there while it was still warm, thinking and believing that if I eat the flesh, since the, 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 the essence of the soul of this animal lives in its liver, if I eat and partake of that liver and the blood in it, I will take on the attributes of that animal. I will have his strength or I will have his speed or whatever the animal was. There is a part of that where 
there, that's a perversion in these ancient or these pagan rituals. But there is a grain of truth to it also. Let's read on in verse 12. He says, Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of, the f- of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So from a biblical standpoint, when it talks about the blood of an animal, that blood represents the entire life force of that animal. So that when Jesus shed his blood, it wasn't just the physical blood. It was the physical blood had a spiritual aspect that Jesus not only was pouring out his physical life, but he was pouring out his spiritual life. He was pouring out his very essence. That's why I think it's in Corinthians where it says that he who knew no sin became sin. He literally didn't just carry our sins on the cross. He became those sins. And then when that price was paid for that sin, that sin couldn't stay with him. It had that sin literally made a spiritual union with the human spirit of Jesus. And he became that sin and took all of the punishment of that sin. Because sin has to be punished. There is no... Jesus didn't just forgive our sins. And by that, I'm I'm not saying that that's all there was to salvation. But I'm saying God didn't say, okay, Jesus, we're just going to forgive their sins. I'll, I'll use an illustration. Someone could... In fact, I've had this. I've had people in, in my life and in, in the ministry, but in my life in particular, that have done really nasty things to me. Things that I didn't deserve, but they hurt me. I mean, they cut me to the quick. Well, I figured out a long time ago, I can't harbor hatred towards that person. I can't carry that anger around. I have to forgive them. But I forgive them from my side. But there can never be reconciliation with that person until they come to the, to the, to the realization that they sinned against me and come in and, and confess that sin to me. And then we can have a joint rejoining. Well, in, in the mind of God, he did not just look at Jesus and say, okay, we're going to forgive their sins. That wasn't enough. The price for those sins had to be paid. There had to be, the, God has scales. You know, we see um, Lady Justice on our courthouses and stuff, and she always has a scale. And her job is to weigh out the evidence and decide the matter. Well, God has a scale, and all of our sin is piled up on one side of it. And 
we have to have some payment on that other side. And that payment wasn't just enough to balance the scales. It jammed the other side down to where the sin literally disappeared. That was what Jesus did through his blood because he poured out his very life to not just forgive, but to cancel out that sin. Now, part of the problem comes is, well, why would anybody ever go to hell? Well, because we don't go to hell for our sins. We go to hell because we rejected God's gift. God turned around after our sin was forgiven and said, this is my son. He is the way into a relationship with me. And if you want to have a relationship with me, he is the only way to get in. You have to accept him. You have to confess to him that, yes, you need his help. You are desperately sinful. The only way I can describe it. You are, there is a doctrine of, in the church, we don't um, preach on it much anymore, the doctrine of depravity. Uh, the reason I, my daughter never had to teach either one of her sons to be rebellious is they have rebellion in them. That's the nature of sin that they got from Adam. My mother and father didn't have to teach me to be rebellious. Probably the one sinful trait that I still have and have to deal with more than any other. You tell me something to do, oh man, I just, there's part of me. And in fact, I, I've, my kids and I had this discussion, my wife and I have had this discussion over the years. Ask me for something, I'll go to the moon and back to try to get it for you if I think it's good for you. Tell me you want, I have to do something for you, and I'll cut my nose off to spite my face. There is a part of me that just resists being told what to do. Now, there are times in, in jobs and stuff, people, you know, someone in authority says, this is what you need to do, and you just have to go do it. But, man, it's so much easier when someone just asks and says, would you do this for me? Well, sure. It's easier. Well, we, that rebellion is part of that nature of the sin. Part of that we never get rid of. It's, it's, it's um, connected to our flesh. In fact, Paul said also in Romans, verse 18, where he's talking about, you know, I, I will to do good, but I can't do good. Well, in Romans seven eighteen, he says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Our, that sin nature always is in our flesh. That's part of what we looked at last week. We talked about the redemption. Part of the redemption that we have is instantaneous. God changes our spirits on the inside of us. But we won't get the, re the ultimate redemption until Jesus comes back and we take on a glorified body that does not have the nature of sin. Then we don't have to resist sin. That's why there's no more tears in heaven. Why there's no heartache and sorrow. They don't have the nature of sin to contend with. Well, in heaven now, they don't have bodies other than Jesus. Nobody has a physical body. So they don't have that nature of sin. But when we all come back and we go through the millennial reign and then go on into the, the um, new heaven and the new earth, the bodies that we have will be like Jesus' body. It'll be a resurrected body that does not have sin in it at all. That's going to be great. But it all comes through his blood. 
And, and I know I'm going on and on about that, but <clears throat> we have to understand that he paid the price for that sin, but there is a, the only price that we have to pay to receive salvation is we have to recognize and admit that we need a savior, that we are depraved, that we are sinful. If, if just coming to Jesus and saying, I want you to be, come into my heart, if you don't come realizing that you, that's the only way, I, I don't know that that's the, that's the first step. And it's part of the problem with, with us as Christians. We need to have that, that realization. But then once we get into the kingdom, we need to more identify with who we are in Christ than who I used to be and still am in my flesh. A sinner. I have to recognize I'm a sinner to get in, but once I'm in, I have to recognize that who I am in Christ is the real me and the real important me, because that's where my victory lies. But I can't just come in and accept Christ's sacrifice and say, okay, I'm going to be part of, I want to be part of you and have you be part of me without the realization that. You have to have him and you can't do it yourself. That's just a requirement. And I say that, I guess part of the reason I'm emphasizing that is a lot of the modern church, I mean, we have a cross up here. I, I hate the fact that we have to have that stupid screen down to show scriptures and stuff because the cross is, it is primary to our redemption. And, but there are churches all over the country, Christian churches that are taking crosses out of their building because people find that offensive. Paul said, this is the offense, there is an offense of the cross. There are, you know, the, not to pick on the PETA people, but there are people that, that don't, you know, they look at this as an ancient, primitive, gruesome religion, Christianity, because it requires blood. And no God would require blood. Yes, it, it, is a, it is a covenant. It's a, it is saying that, that I am, everything that's yours is mine and everything that's mine is yours. It enters into that covenant. And without the blood, we're still in our sins. Still in our sins. But then he goes on and he, he, he makes this next statement, next little phrase. He said, in him we have redemption, that's the buying back, through his blood, through his very life essence, the forgiveness of sins. I love this. The, um, um, the, that first word for redemption was literally polytrosis, which means to buy back by paying a ransom. But when he says through his blood, we have the forgiveness, the word there for, for forgiveness is aphesis, and it means to send something away. In fact, it's, in, in most Greek literature, it's used to describe the process of a divorce. When a man would divorce his, his wife, he would send her away. You are no longer flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. You are gone, and I cut you off and send you away, and we do not have that covenant is broken. But where you get it here, it's the forgiveness of sins. 
The word there is parapetoma, which is literally translated in a lot of places, trespasses or misdeeds, but the literal meaning means to fall from a high position. When it's talking about our sins, it's not talking about a specific action. It's what it's talking about more than anything is the result of those actions. The result of our sin, because, you know, one of the big questions that people have, especially with the doctrine of depravity, if, if a person is born depraved, does that mean that if a baby dies, that baby's going to hell? Because they're born depraved. They're born with the sin of Adam. If they haven't accepted Christ, how do they go to heaven? Well, they're not saved in the sense that we are, but they are safe because at, before the age of accountability, they cannot act on that nature of sin that's within them due to their ignorance because they're, they're just young. And, and ignorant doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means you're uninformed. And until you know, come to a knowledge that this act is wrong, you don't get the just results. It does, does not mean that you don't have that nature. You do. But you don't have the end results. You don't fall from that place. And in one way, we're all born with the nature of sin. We're all born with the curse of the fall because our natural bodies are made up of the, the natural elements of this world. It's why we get old, why, why children die, why, why young people die, why bad things happen to good people. It's the fall of Adam. But spiritually, they don't fall from that high place. They still have a union with God so that if they die, their spirit goes back to him. Now, after the age of accountability, that's where it gets dicey. That's why, you know, I was... I've said it about my kids. My kids were raised in church, which is not always a good, it's not necessarily that it's not a, it's not that it's not a good thing. It's a good thing to be raised in church. But you can be raised in church and just be raised with legalism and never see any fruit. And you get the wrong idea about church. But my kids saw things, they actually saw the manifest glory of God and they can't, they cannot remember when they got saved. They don't have any idea. I mean, I know when they actually made a profession of faith and got baptized. But for them, when they look back on their life, they've always been saved. That's just that I, I've, I never had a time when I didn't know Jesus. Well, I'm glad that's that was my goal. That doesn't mean that they didn't sin. Doesn't mean that they didn't make mistakes. Some of their mistakes they paid for dearly. Doesn't mean that you have a, a um, you're going to have a, a life without problems. We all have a life of problems. Problems come with just being in this world because sometimes I can do everything right and the sin of other people still impacts me. There, you know, I, I, people don't like this idea of chance happenings. There's no luck in a Christian's life. 
Well, I agree. I'm, I'm not lucky. I'm blessed. I agree with that, that, with that philosophy. But I also know <clears throat> that there are some evil things that can come my way just because other people are doing wrong things and I just happen to be in the wrong spot, wrong place at the wrong time. Other people sin. A guy goes out here and he gets drunk. He gets on the wrong side of the expressway and drives, you know, 80 miles an hour down the wrong way. Innocent people get hurt and sometimes get killed as a result of his sin, not their sin. Bad things do happen to good people, but it's, it's all the result of sin. And there is, sin, there is so much sin in our world that it's part of the reason that things are getting worse in the end times because we're coming up on the, the end of the age and the devil knows his time is short and he's stirring things up. Part of the reason we were talking earlier, we need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our president, but really it, it's not so much the president, it, it's not the man. It doesn't matter who's standing in that office. He needs our prayers or she needs our prayers. Whoever has the authority is going to be under attack. And the closer we get to the end, and I really do believe we're not far from it. Now, I know I've heard that preached. Lord, I've heard that preached. I heard end time messages preached in the 70s and 80s, and I thought, none of this can happen. I mean, I heard pastors preach and evangelists preach that, you know, Russia was going to come down through Iran and assault, and I'm thinking the, Iran, the Shah of Iran has a, a, a treaty. They're friendly with Israel. They're allies. Turkey was allies with Israel. Russia's never going to be allowed to do that. Today, that's quite obvious. Iran and Russia are allies. Turkey is turning towards Russia and towards Iran, and they, they have more influence. All of the chess pieces are lining up. That doesn't mean Jesus is definitely coming back this year or next year. But there's only one prophecy that has to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back. And that's the blast of the horn from Gabriel's mouth. And the shout when the, the dead in Christ come back. When those, that's all that has to happen. There's no other biblical prophecy. And I know I've heard a lot of evangelists say, no, the gospel has to be preached to all nations before he can return. The gospel has been preached to all nations. There's not a people group anywhere in the world that hasn't had the gospel presented to them. There might be individuals, but there are no groups of people. And if you're open to it, God will get it. He'll get you the, the, um, the, the message. Now, that tells me the forgiveness of sins, that it's not just, there is an act of buying us out through his blood. That was the price that Jesus had to pay. But in doing that, he divorced us from the fall. Now, I still have sin in my flesh, but spiritually speaking... I exist and I have all the authority that Adam had before the fall. I have a right to impose Eden in my life. Now that doesn't mean I won't have opposition. There are limits to that. 
my body's going to grow old. I don't, I don't, I can't live. I just read something because I'm a science geek, read something that scientists have determined that with the, the right immunotherapy and the right conditions that a human body should have no problem living a thousand years. Well, I'm telling you, God created our bodies to be eternal. Had Adam and Eve not fallen, their bodies would still be alive today. And how many years ago was that? I don't know. It, it, you know, if you go by the, the guy in England that added up all of the, the um, genealogies back in Genesis, it goes back to 6,000 years. The problem with some of those genealogies is they don't all agree. There are, some of them are shortened, some of them are expanded, and there may be people missing. Could go back 10,000 years, could go back 15,000 years. I don't know, but I do know that had they not fallen, they would still be alive. Well, and nobody lived that long. I mean, the, the, the least amount of time it could be would be the 6,000 years. Could have been a lot longer. When we get our new, new redeemed bodies, eternity. And then let me finish this by introducing next week's lesson, which, man, I'm just, I've already studied some on it, but it's just, I got excited when I started reading about this. The last phrase there in verse 7, that we have redemption through his blood, we have the forgiveness of sins, but it's all according to the riches of his grace. That the, we didn't just get forgiven, we got elevated, we are joint heirs. That riches of his grace, in fact, it, it's similar, this, it's not a direct analogy here, but in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, let me read this, uh, in verse 17 he says, he's praying that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that me, you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. So this is available to everyone, theoretically. But he wants us to comprehend or know with our own mind what is the width, length, depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge or is above natural knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. There are so many promises there, but the one I really like and this is the science geek that's appealing to me. When you look at dimensions, we live in a three-dimensional world. The, the space-time that surrounds us, we have the direction away from us and behind us. We have left and right, and we have up and down. That's it. Time is a, is a factor, but, but that's part of space-time. But the, the space that our universe occupies only has those three dimensions. But when Paul, and remember, Paul is being, Paul wasn't a scientist in the modern sense, but he's also inspired by the Holy Spirit here. When he lists the, these dimensions, he lists four. What is the width, the length, the depth, and the height? And I went back and looked up the Greek words for those, they, they all can be used for any dimension. There, it's not a particular thing. He's just saying, and what I see him saying here, is there is more to this than naturally. It, th this expands beyond just our natural world. This is really a comprehension 
but it's not something you can study out the way you study arithmetic or you study you know, languages. It's more of a revelation that God has to give us. But it's a revelation, that's what I think he means, to know the love of Christ, which goes beyond natural knowledge. That we might be filled with all the fullness of God. We are finite beings. How can we be filled with the fullness of God? I don't know, but Paul sets it out here. That's part of the riches of the glory. The riches of his grace. Those two Paul uses almost interchangeably in different places in Ephesians. There are, there's so much to this that we have to get a revelation. But when we get a revelation of what his grace has done for us, wow, we can be filled with the fullness of God. We can represent God in the same way that Christ represented the Father. I think that's part of the reason if you read the book of Acts, it said that Peter walked through the streets and if his shadow fell on people, they would get saved. They would get healed. Not saved. Well, same word. Saved, healed, same thing. It's one process. How in the world is just your shadow hitting? It's because Peter was filled with the knowledge of the fullness of God. He knew who he was in Christ. He was so filled up with, with the glory of God that he didn't have a problem grabbing that lame man's hand and saying, I don't have any money on me today, but what I do have is the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. And a man who'd been crippled from birth, who Jesus had passed by, no doubt, and never healed. Peter grabbed him and he was healed completely. How could he do that? Because he had a revelation of who God was in him and who he was in God. And it allowed him to do wondrous things. And the point of that whole passage there in, in Acts wasn't to get the man healed, although I know God wanted him healed. There was a, there, that was an evangelistic moment. Thousands got saved. When you start demonstrating healing and the supernatural work of Christ... People will flock to the altars to get that Christ. When Christ is, is when, when our version of Jesus is just a dead letter of don't do this and don't do that and you can't have any fun, people will stay away by the millions. And to be honest with you, if that's all there was to the message, I, I, I think I would probably want to stay away from them too. And, and it's not that uh, we, we come and get saved just to get blessed. But we come to get blessed. We come to know who Christ is and knowing that with salvation comes all these blessings. I mean, I didn't marry my wife because I knew I was going to get blessed in marrying her. I married her because I loved her. But I knew there were blessings that came along with getting married. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.